So I just talking to All right, dear. Hello, I'm Nana. And if you enjoy listening to my sweethearts talk on this show, maybe tell a friend of yours. And maybe they can enjoy it, too. And if you would like to see this little show go a little bit further, maybe check out the Darlings Buy Me a Coffee account. All right. Okay, honey, you can go ahead with your flashlight thing now. Ladies, gentlemen, please take your seats. The spotlight is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. I'm Mystery Matt, and you're listening to the Mystery Matt Spotlight Podcast. In this episode, we are covering part two of the Night Stalker. Ooh. So, if you listen to uh, the first part, 90s, 90s, something, something, arcades were cool. Um, 80s, not 90s. Well, yeah, but a lot of the stuff you were talking about went into the 90s, didn't it? No, it was strictly 84, 85. Oh, just 84 and 84. Okay, well, there's your update. So if you haven't seen the first episode, I highly suggest, or, well, not seen, but listen to. If you haven't listened to the first episode, then I would suggest that because we are doing a continuation from there. We are going further down the bunny hole. And one comes before two, right? Not always. You know what I learned the other day? Or sometimes not at all. (laughs) Not every pee-pee time is a poo-poo time. But every poo-poo time is a pee-pee time. You didn't know that? I'm just saying. I'm just getting that out Well, I there. guess that's really good for men because you guys pee standing up. And you imagine if all of a sudden you drop one and you're short. It just falls down your pant leg. <laughs> cool. I'm sorry. That I thought that was like a universal knowledge you. That, that you can't poop without peeing at some point. Like, like you always will pee when you poop. This might sound disgusting, but this whole conversation already is. So <laughs> yeah. I'm not adding anything that... It's different, but to me, the pee adds as lubrication for those ones that are hard to get out. I have no idea. Or cleaning. It's I don't true. know. Yeah. Who knows? But I mean, you even with those, dogs. You get even those with dogs. ones that don't want to come out and they're sitting there turtling. <laughs> and to prevent them from groundhogging completely, <laughs> you pee a little and then plop. See? Okay. I went too far, probably. Anyway, but I always thought like that was just, you know, you were always going to pee when you poop. Like even Sorry. dogs do it. Even Sorry to any of our new listeners who are not used to our <laughs> crass sense of humor. And canceled. <laughs> Alrighty. So, uh, I, I just needed to get in some humor because these, these, these things are serious. Are, yeah. They're so dark. They are dark. And having even, okay, so I listened to Cheryl McCulloch's uh, podcast called Zone 7. And at the beginning, she tells a little story about her childhood and how she got into certain things, right? And she's really good. She's got like this soft Southern Atlantic voice. And it's very soothing. But even she has admitted, as a crime scene investigator... A lot of her colleagues in her have like this really bad sense of humor because that's their only way of dealing with this stuff. And I think it goes the same as nurses. I was just going to say, I'm sorry, both my parents are nurses. The dark humor that they have to come up you with have to. in order to survive what they are seeing every day. Like nurses humor is is beyond the bar, as we all know here yeah. from my folks. But it, it's what you've got to do to survive. That's exactly how yeah. Cheryl puts it. So if you ever listen to Zone 7, which I highly recommend... Um, just understand, you know, that, yeah, she's she's a good Southern woman, but she's got a really good sense of humor because she's seen so many dark things. 
So when you hear us do these podcasts, if we crack a joke, even though we don't really like we're taking these seriously, yeah. we don't really mean it. It's just to kind of break up the monotony of the yeah, seriousness and the darkness. We don't mean darkness. to offend, but that's how some of us deal with stuff. <laughs> like, for example, I know a joke about seizures. And I used to take seizures a lot as a kid. So did my brother and my sister. And Your so did my dad. My niece and nephew did as well. And my nephew is actually fairly damaged from all the times he's gone in a seizure. But even still, I can say, what do you do when a, someone is having a seizure in a bathtub? A load of laundry. <laughs> yep. So, anyways, uh, yeah, we 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 what? Wheelchair jokes. Yeah, wheelchair jokes. Oh, oh yeah, I had calling, a good one the other day. Oh no, it was Al Snow. Oh, right, Al Snow had wrote this tweet out the other day. I don't even think I need my phone. His tweet was the other. D- he goes, one night I took a drunk guy home. He was so drunk he could barely walk. So I carried him home. The first thing his wife said is. Where's his wheelchair? <laughs> I love it. Matt got laughing so hard. He had the high pitch. <laughs> thing Actually, going on. As, and it was hilarious. As as a girl in a wheelchair who's been drunk, I got to tell you, there are times when you're, you're sitting there, you're like, I can walk. I can walk. Yeah, I can walk. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and then you try to get out of the chair and all of a sudden you drop and it's like, oh, maybe I can't. I almost all fucking right. spit my wine all over the microphone. Thanks. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I, I love, I love jokes about and wheelchairs. I'm a big love girl. Them. I make things like, oh man, I'm, I'm, I gotta, I'm hungry. I'm in a hurry. I gotta get like, like the fat kid needs to get to that all you can eat barbecue. <laughs> you know, like I can make the fat jokes too. So to make humor on situations that are harder for people to grasp or not acceptable or funerals or weddings about <laughs> the marriage not lasting. It's a way to cope or a yeah. way to deal with it, you know? So, yeah. Humor is a great release. Humor is a key for a release of tension. <clears throat> I'm one that gets in trouble a lot for my humor because nothing is off the table usually. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's usually where I have problems. Well, but I, I think, we should probably get into okay, the. Well, I think the, it's safe to say that if Nancy and I are ever put into a serious situation, or my mother and I are put into a serious situation, we're not allowed to look at each other. Oh. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, if, I mean, if Nancy was here and I was staring at her right now, reading this about like They're dead not older people, to we'd be sit fucking beside each other. Or we'd be fucking killing ourselves laughing. Well, hell, I remember I almost had you in stitches at, at Uncle John's funeral because I, I turned to you in the middle. Everyone's crying. Everyone's sad. I go, hey, at my funeral, I want highway to hell. And I mean, she just starts. I was so hard. I had to put my hands over my mouth and I was jiggling like my dad. It was just, you know, it, you know, it was just I would, yeah. didn't want to cry. So I came up with a joke, you know. But you know what the thing is? Uncle John would have found that hilarious. Oh, he would have loved it. Yeah. He would have loved it. All right. So enough with the shits and giggles. Let's just get on with the shits. <laughs> See how I did that? Shits yeah. and giggles? Because yeah. we talked about poop. Yeah. Anyways. So, anyways, welcome back to the less gruesome part of this true crime podcast. Don't forget to check out our fan page. Yep. We'll get to that at the end. Well, so, tonight we're talking. No, probably not. <laughs> we'll forget. Tonight we are talking cross-jurisdictional issues, identifying in the capture of a monster. And we also talk about the background of the killer, his admirers, his little bit of his court, like his trial, and the end of this sordid story. What are you doing with bum, your teeth? Bum, bum. <laughs> I look up and Colleen's licking her teeth in her hand. It's probably jizz. <laughs> jizz doesn't leave seeds. She said in your there's mouth. something stuck. 
I'm sorry. Anybody who has dentures knows this. You get something stuck in them and then your gums are hurting and you're like, I've got to get it out. And I'm sorry, I was not trying to find my way into the bathroom. So yeah, I just did that. All right, whatever. I'm looking at the paper and I just happened to look up at Colleen and she's got her teeth in her hand and she's fucking licking them. And I'm like, no other way right now. I didn't want to, I don't have my toothbrush here. What am I supposed to do? All right. I get it. But it was just, it just, lay off the toothless girl. All right. (laughs) Well, this podcast has gotten off to a great start. So if you're looking for a gummer, <laughs> I got your girl. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Okay, so the investigation. So the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office had, sorry, I'm still kind of getting over things, um, had been investigating this case since March and have managed to gather quite a bit of evidence. So let's do a quick recap of the evidence. So we have the Size 11 and a half of ASU print found at multiple scenes. The 22 caliber used in the first half, but switched to the 25 automatic hold your horses, Colleen, which ejected red primer casing indicating the ammo was old. We've got multiple descriptions, a fingerprint off a stolen car's rear view mirror, and not to mention biologicals, which doesn't really help this case in 1984 and 85. Okay, Colleen, what? Now that's March 84, correct? Yes, March Okay. March, March of, of 84. March which... of 85, actually, because that's when they started, but their cases go back to 84. Oh, okay. And they didn't start investigating them until March 85. 85 yes. Because they didn't know the other two were ha- had happened already. Okay. All right. But the j- one's in like June, July of 84. No. That was... Just, oh, okay. Just All right. listen to the first one, even though you were there. I did. Okay. I don't have those notes with me. I left them in the house. Yeah. She's got today's notes, not yesterday's yeah. notes. So deal with it. All right. So, despite five months into the investigation, lead superstar detectives Gil Carrillo and Frank Salerno have no suspects. They know their care their character. Their killer left Los Angeles briefly and killed a man, raped and battered his wife in San Francisco. The two detectives flew to Frisco to meet with um, San Francisco Police Inspector Frank Falzone. Carrillo and Salerno soon discovered the media was on their heels and followed them to San Francisco. So this is where I think the media needs to be shot. But whatever. That's just an opinion. Don't come for me. So a reporter from Los Angeles spoke to the neighbor of the Pans, who happened to be a police officer. (coughs) And he got really lucky because the neighbor let it slip about the satanic carvings at the scene. So why is this a problem? I think we kind of discussed this a little bit in part one, but this creates an issue in law enforcement when it comes to interviewing potential suspects and weeding out false confessions. And yes, some people are dumb enough to confess to crimes they did not commit. Um, it's a very common and longstanding investigative tactic to keep unique facts and evidence close to the vest, to keep the information that only the real killer would be privy to. Those satanic carvings would have been unique to the case, and that's why they hadn't been made public before. So anyways, needless to say... This probably pissed off Salerno and Carrillo because if I was an investigating uh, lead detective on a homicide serial case, I would be quite pissed off or any case for that matter. So Salerno and Carrillo sit down and brief the San Francisco Police Department on their case. They shared shared information, including the shoe print, where they stressed the absolute importance of keeping this information secretive. It's strictly confidential. The chief was summoned to Mayor Diane Feinstein's office as she wanted to be updated on the case. And the chief proceeds to tell her everything. And I do mean everything. So in a press conference, Mayor Feinstein <coughs> spews out about the f- ammunition, the gun calibers, fingerprints, point of entry, cars used, and s- fucking spews out the details about the shoe print. Thank you, Tuesday. 
Oh, he's a detective, right? Yes, he is, right? Detective So thanks to her verbal diarrhea, the killer now knows what he's done wrong and what connects him to all the murders. He's going to ditch the guns, he's going to wear gloves, and he's going to ditch his shoes. So this stupid mare just sunk the case. She just made it ten times harder to catch this guy. What a fucking idiot. Safe to say, Frank Salerno and Gil Carrillo were mad as two male rams butting heads during mating season on a steep slope of a stupid mountain. Can I say something? Yeah. So, we got Colleen here now, right? Filling in for uh, Kelly. Yeah. Uh, We don't know if she's coming back or not. Uh, We wish her the best either way. Uh, No heart feelings on either end. And the microphone's Uh, always open for her. Yeah, she just needs some time. You know, sometimes life gets busy. Um, So we've got Colleen here. And I just realized we've done two episodes. And in both episodes, he's barked. Yeah. And they're true crimes. And I keep calling him Detective Tuesday. (laughs) So it kind of fits. It does fit. So he he might become the mascot of our our true crimes. I think so. We've got an aficionado Detective Tuesday here, you know, who's actually just a a service poodle. (laughs) You know. Yeah, but he's he's a smart dog. Detective Tuesday. All right. So the sheriff takes this massive fuck up to San Francisco and flat out told them how they fucked up. That the mayor's stupid need to flap her gums in a press conference just jeopardized their case. And those are my words, not his. So any anybody want to weigh in on this huge fuck up in the media and shit that we've discussed? Well, I think, like, number one, I'm sorry. Politicians, yes, they want. Sorry, Matt, I stole the mic from you. I- <laughs> <laughs> and the mic disappears so, on Yeah, him. the mic disappeared. Well, you know. The thing is, like, politicians want to be brief. They want to know what's going on in their area. But there is a limit. They are not detectives. They are not police force. They are thinking about how the people are voting. And what they're worried about is that what if my voters realize I knew this and I didn't tell them I might not get votes? That should never be a consideration in a crime case, ever. And I think that, yes, they should be told some things, but... Nothing that can ever endanger the case. And those shoe prints were a huge issue. Like, they had already dealt with the issue of the shoe prints once before, I think, where a dete- where a reporter had gotten wind of it and it wanted to uh, do a story on it. And Salerno and... Um, and Creo. Salerno and Carino, their captain brokered a deal with that reporter about, hey, listen, no... You, you cannot release that information. It will jeopardize, but I'll give you a, a one-on-one interview instead. And the report was like, yeah, sure, I'll go for that. And I have an issue definitely with the media in this because I feel the media should not be involved in solving a case or jeopardizing it. They should sit back and wait for the information to be given. Um, and if they get wind of some information that the p- police have not put out they should never threaten to use it or use it as leverage against the police that's the problem they don't fucking care no they don't it's they about have the no story morals. it's about the story when yeah. it comes to that they get on their high horse that this is the story this is all it means and this the people need to know and it's like no the people do not need to know what type of shoe he wears sorry yeah. that's yeah. not important to them yeah so okay i take it back like i'm i'm bragging a lot on the mayor and I already expressed my thoughts to you guys privately about how I was about to do this rant about her and decided against it because I would have been canceled for sure. Um, 
in her defense, we also don't know how much the chief told her. He obviously told her everything, but did he tell her, don't that, say this stuff? And that was actually what so I was saying. So is it partly his fault? And yeah. here I am. I just thought of this now. Um, is it partly his fault or is it all on her? Like, is it like it could go? It might be both ways. Maybe she just forgot and just said it out loud. Yeah. Um, either way, it was a huge problem and it my, fucked the case. Yeah. My big question on that one was exactly what you had was, was she told that this was information that could not be revealed? My thing is too, right? So after this press conference, did he commit any crimes without making these mistakes that we don't know that he did? Like, you I know? I think I remember from the documentary, what he did is he actually threw his show, shoes into over the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. So they couldn't find them. They could never yeah, test them. Yeah, they could never them. connect them. Um, so it would never be, he'd never be able to identify on that. And yes, he did commit crimes after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so but they couldn't connect him to anything. So exactly. and it's because of this fuck up yeah. that they couldn't do it. So yeah. here's my thing, right? So the media, um, no, sorry, the serial killers, and it's a well-known fact that they follow the media mm-hmm. and they follow the police investigation carefully. Edmund Kemper actually was buddies with cops at a cop bar and he would sit there and just sit quietly and listen to them talk about his crimes and their case and where it was at. And he was in no need of no worry of getting caught because they knew nothing. He'd sit there and chat them up. He was their buddy. He was their buddy. Yeah. And even when he turned himself in, he turned himself into one of his cop buddies. Yeah. And so that's common. They they insert themselves in some way into the investigation or they follow the media. BTK followed the media. He also inserted himself by sending cryptic messages and letters to the media as well as the police department. So it's known fact. The Zodiac. He he, he was huge into following. He might have been the, the first, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because he 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 did a lot of his stuff through the newspaper, did he not? Yeah. But Jack the Ripper I, that, may yeah. have. I was going to say no. Jack, Jack the him. Ripper. Yeah. It, I mean, Zodiac emulated no debunked. He he emulated Jack the Ripper in terms of sending letters to the newspaper. He was emulating that whether or not it was Jack the Ripper, but someone claiming to be Jack the Ripper did, and it was taken at the time as fact. It's been um, since debunked. Yeah, I've heard different things on that one. I'm not going to like. I mean, Jack the Ripper. I don't know it that much. I'll go about by it my profiler buddies that I look up to and say that it's been debunked. Yeah. So I mean, I've heard different things. I don't know enough. Well, on even that one. if you look at it, right. It kind of falls under the purview of false confessions. Yeah. You've got a guy like John Mark Carr who confessed fully to murdering Jean Benet Ramsey. And then he was cleared because the evidence didn't match him. Yeah. So it's the same. Somebody could write a letter proclaiming to be Jack the Ripper, probably even named the guy Jack the Ripper yeah. himself. Yes, he gave himself the name. Or somebody gave it to him. But Zodiac it's was not following uncommon. the example. He was, oh, yeah, whatever. I agree. And Zodiac was definitely following the example of and that. You and know, he was probably the first one in the modern day. And Ramirez absolutely did follow the media. Oh, he was clearly did. Absolutely. He was big on and he'd been following them for years. And you know why they do this? It's a narcissistic tendency yep. because they want to be famous. Yep. Ted Bundy said that himself. People are gonna know my name. BTK. People are gonna know my name. Brian Koberger currently is following every podcast, every newscast, everything about what he did in Idaho. Yeah. And he's only like 28 or 29 or something like that. Yeah. And he knows he's following everything because he wants to be famous and fucking killing four university students in one night in the same place has made him famous. Fame or infamy. It doesn't it's matter to them. To me. Yeah, it's, it is. It's infamy because but it's it's it doesn't matter to them. It's still their name is out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, yeah, Ramirez knew all about the detectives and everything. So pop quiz. Name one Ted Bundy victim. I can't. And that's what I hate because I hate, I hate. I hate the fact that the 
the serial killers are the names we remember and not the victims. But yet I am guilty of that too. I cannot name one of Ted Bundy's victims. Denise Nasland. Denise. Okay. Very good. Good for you. I Janice Ott. I can't name. I honestly, I have to admit the the only one where I can really name the victims is the one that's close to home and heart, which oh, is yeah. Bernardo and Hamolka. Yeah, and of course Christian French, Leslie Mahaffey, and absolutely, Tammy. and and poor Tammy. Yeah, yeah, and I can name Kimberly Leach as well. So I I can at least name three Ted at, Bundy at victims least, off yeah. the top of my head right now. But I can't. I haven't de- dived up, and I'm terrible with names. And I can I can give you the family that BTK first killed, and that was the um. Oh my god! Now okay, now I can't because now I'm putting myself on the spot. But I know the family, yeah. right? I know their names. Oh, Taro, that's it. Um, Joseph, Julie, little Joseph, and um, jo- uh, Josephine. Otero were his first four victims. But I will say, Nancy that Fox was another one. You I, know? At least with so, R- Ramirez. Now I, and it's very sad to say, and I'm very sorry. I will always remember that he killed a man named Peter Pan. Right? So, and I'm sorry. It's hard to, to forget that. that. It's, I can't, because that name gives me an association. So I'm able to remember it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, it obviously it was a weird coincidence that this yeah. man's name just happened to be Peter Pan. But, yeah. um, well, he was Asian. And yeah. so he had the lot. There's yeah. actually quite a few victims of his that did turn out to be Asian or, or, um, even East Indian, I think, of some kind. I'm not even sure. Don't hold me to that. I'm not, I'm not sure what the name's origins are. But he did seem to kill. Well, I can't even say that. Asian, Hispanics, white. Hispa- a- Hispanics is his culture. So yeah. it makes sense for him to go after his own kind. Because we very, not we, serial killers very rarely, if at all, cross racial lines. They kill yeah. their own. We saw that in the Wayne Williams case. Yeah, we mentioned that in a previous podcast. Yeah. So go back to the Atlanta child murders. You can learn a lot from that. Atlanta one. child murders, yeah. yeah. That's a two-parter as well. Anyway, so shall we move on? Good shows. Yeah. And that one was hard for me. I couldn't focus on the victims because there were so many. So that's why I did the WordPress and I actually talked about the victims in paragraph and less about him. Oh, and and I just wanted to say a big thank you to our audience. We, uh, at my last check, were at 1,069 listens (laughs) and that's nice. (laughs) All right. So let's move on. That was a good discussion, though. So on August 27th, 1985, a woman calls police to say that her father befriended some guy on Skid Row and he hangs out at the soup kitchen whose name was Rick. She expresses to police that both she and her father believe Rick could be the Night Stalker. All she knew was that the man was from El Paso, Texas, and that Rick told her father about a murder and gave her father a gun. Her father th- took, then took the gun to Tijuana, Mexico. Tijuana. Tijuana. Please go to Tijuana. And not only do they recover the gun, but a boombox. The same one stolen from Mabel Bell and Florence Lang on May 29th. Their son or grandson, one of their son or grandsons or nephews or something, confirmed this by the serial number because they had the he had the information. Wow. Yeah. So they like were the able owner's to, manual or something. Yeah, or something like that. Like he had the the number. In San Francisco, an informant called Earl Greggs, and I don't know if these names are one hundred percent Earl Greggs. I don't know if they're true because a lot of times when you have confidential informants, they either give false names or they just say ACI. So we'll take it with a grain of salt. Earl Greggs. Okay. Right? He brings in a bracelet that belonged to his mother-in-law in in San Pablo. She told Greggs that her boyfriend, Armando Rodriguez, gave it to her and that he got it from a friend from El Paso named Rick. He described Rick as wearing a black members-only jacket, a black ACDC hat, and had horrible teeth. This leads Inspector Frank Falzone to pick up Armando Rodriguez. 
And while in the back of Falzone's police vehicle, Rodriguez is adamant that he is that his friend Rick isn't the Night Stalker and refuses to help. When Falzone presses for a last name, Rodriguez refuses. This is where I kind of, and I politely question police ethnics, get a little dicey. So things get violent inside the car, and it isn't until Falzone is about to hit Rodriguez that he yells out the name Richard Ramirez over and over. You saw the documentary, Colleen. Yeah, and you know did what? Did that make you question his, his ethnics a little no, bit? Because it no, did for me. It didn't because I guess I was putting myself in the position of these police detectives where their whole lives were on hold. They were working 16, 18-hour days. Um, they had nothing. They were also, like, it was, they were constantly in work. They were exposed to all of the horrific, horrific things that, that this killer did. And they had to live through, and they were living this night and day. They couldn't be with their families. They were f- feared for their families. True. Um, because what if their information got leaked? Like, that was it a huge... It did happen with exactly. Salerno, right? And the fact that there had been incidents close to, like, there was an incident close to a police officer right next door. Like, one police officer. I was, yeah, crime scene investigator, Linda. Yeah, and but there was one police officer and his wife. 15 minutes away. And oh, they, uh, yeah, I forgot about them. There was one yes. police officer Hernandez? and his wife. Oh, no, Romero. And... They actually, somebody broke into their home and they managed to scare the person away, but there were footprints there and it was the Night Stalker. It was the Night Stalker, yeah. And this was was a policeman who worked with them. So yeah, it did hit home. I forgot about that case totally. So I guess what I think of is that the policemen are only human. Yeah. And when you put anybody who has spent months working a case trying to find a little bit of information to save a life and they've given up everything in order to do it. And they meet somebody who won't give them a name. I can't understand why they do that. I can understand I it. I can. But as a granddaughter of a police chief who once told me that the, one of the hardest things for he that he can't that he has to like maintain on the job is to be completely unbiased. And it and he said, no matter how hard it was, when he had to deal with a man who raped and touched children, he had to reserve himself from smacking him or shooting him. So there has to be some semblance of control during those frustrations and during that anger because my grandfather is like my father he's short-tempered you know i love both of them i'm short-tempered right you can say it i won't hurt you sure yeah right i'll get you later no i'm just kidding Uh, (laughs) but so so i look at it this way my grandfather being a police a chief of police and former opp officer as well an officer in concarden and in sarnia He's had his fair share of these moments where he wanted to just throttle these assholes who raped and molested children or women, and it angered him to his core, but he never laid a finger. Well, you you also mentioned, I believe it was in the last podcast, (laughs) how uh, the one detective, I think it was, had his family relocated somewhere else until it became safe for them to be around because they... Was it because of the... Yeah, it was because of the night stalker. Yeah. So yeah, I get it. I get both sides. I can I can see I don't think it was right, but I can understand in terms of that they are human. It does happen. Um I don't like it to happen. But I that's think it what would I mean. Be, that was not I think question. it would be better not to In your opinion, you get it. I understand. Yeah. But was it ethical? Not really. It was pretty borderline close. Yeah, and I guess the thing is I don't know and I I will truly say this. I have no idea. You know me. I am very was that very part calm. Four? That, that he was, was discussing part four, this yes. part four. Um, so if you're watching, if you do check out the Night Stalker on Netflix, and I highly recommend that you do because the information in that is 
right from the detective's mouths. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. It was really good and well done. And actually, you yourself can see the scene where Detective or, um, Police Inspector Falzone is talking about this incident with um, uh, Rodriguez. And you can yourself make a judgment call. And if you do watch it, post something about it on our Facebook page, on the Mystery Matt fan club. Because he, he we'd be interested to, be to hear your it. side of it. He didn't seem to be proud of it, it to me. I don't really but, remember. I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. You know, like, you know me. I am extremely calm. Very, very calm. More than I've ever seen anybody in my entire life. <laughs> yes. But I got to tell you, if I was working a case where a dozen people have been brutally murdered and a bunch of children have been abducted and molested and I was face to face with somebody who could give me information, I don't know if I could stop my Like, I, I don't know. I, I think I might even lose it then. So th- I guess that's what I think. Like, if I was in that situation where I'd spent months living this and given up everything. That's more morally. Yeah. Morally, you could not. Morally. Subject yourself to that. Um, and say, I fucking was, went easy on this guy and I couldn't get the information. What if I had gone harder? Yeah. So, yeah, there is a I, line where you cross, right? You can. There's no rule saying that a police officer can't, A, lie to you, or B, go hard at you. Exactly. Because they will. And they have every right to. But if you lay your hands on somebody who's a potential suspect or witness, you're crossing a line. I guess what here's the way I put it. As a human being, I can understand that. As a police officer, I think it was wrong. Because as a police officer, they have to be held to different standards. And that's what they are trained for. And we see that now. Yeah. Like, I'm not even going to get into the whole George Floyd thing. Those guys were fucking guilty as shit. Right? But they crossed a line. Yeah. even if they even had one iota of thought thinking this guy did something horrendous and he's evil as shit, they still cross the line. And it's, you know, and, and it's, but it is, it's, it's the difference between as a, as a human moral looking at it as to what Calzone did and as a police officer moral looking at it, we give the police officers a lot of power. They have a lot of, um, executive function in our society um necessary and to do that though they need to display a certain temperament and have a certain restraint so i do he should should definitely not have done that i agree he should not have done that but i can understand why he did as a human as a human as a human i understand it but as somebody who like i said has law enforcement in her family i look at it if my grandfather can control himself around pedophiles as somebody who knew a pedophile, if there was ever a line to cross, that would be where I would cross it. Yeah. And my grandfather still had that ounce of control. Yeah. And I think that's the difference. To me, that's the difference you know? between a, a normal cop and a good cop. Yeah. My grandfather the, stand up. The And I've known, I've known many policemen who they... They are, they've got that beautiful restraint that they can make it through so much. But in the end, they are still human. So. I just sucked back on the goat bottle. Any thoughts on your end? Because you uh, also have a family member in law enforcement. I, I, well. But you obviously I can't had, go into stories. Had. Well, yeah. so did I. I had. Because my um, grandfather passed. He didn't speak a lot about them. Um, but my uncle had become the, uh, commissioner of the RCMP at one point, and then he ended up taking a stroke. So then they were going to give him more of a desk job. And then he took another stroke. And then this, after the second one, he lost the entire, uh, use of one side of his body. 
Um, it's not the point, but yeah. Um, respect for the law enforcement, it does come in two different flavors. You've got like the men out there who are trying to be better than Batman because they're actually following the laws while trying to get the same job done. Batman goes out and beats relentlessly and and actually could be charged with assault and intent to kill many times, right? Whereas a police officer has to play within the laws. And, or they uh, should. Or they should. Um, I can also understand where sometimes when the room is spinning around, things come undone. You know, the situation got out of hand. An extra bullet might have been fired or too much pressure was applied in a place. I'm not saying anything about any certain incident. Case, yeah. Right. I'm just saying, like... But then you do have the dirty cops. But all in all, I would say the good cops still outweigh the dirty yeah. ones. Yes, Hell I agree. Yes. Hell yes. You know, and my grandfather wasn't one who would just talk about cases. It was like, hey, grandpa, tell me a story. Like, what or, do you think about this? You know what I mean? He had least, to be prompted. Or at least the corruption isn't as bad in Canada. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree. I th- we're looking at it differently. Yeah, we have yeah. a different perspective. We are in... Canada, so, Ontario, like to, one of the most dense populations within Canada. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's so our perspective. To any of our American anyway. listeners out there, we're not saying, I, we know that there's a lot of corruption in your police forces and stuff in your law enforcement um, offices down, down there. Um, and we know that you've gone through a lot of mistrust because of misuse source resources from these police officers and sheriffs and shit. And I can, even me, when I talked about Daniel Robinson and my disdain for the Buckeye Police Department, then I listened to another podcast about another missing person who, guess whose uh, department was supposed to be searching for this girl? Well, Buckeye well, Police Department. And they did fuck all there too. Uh, right? And that's just it. The only thing I ever had against the police was worrying about getting busted for pot. But now that's legal, man. So we ain't got nothing to worry about. So I'm just saying that we we are looking at it at a completely different viewpoint because we don't have as much. I'm not saying we don't have any. I'm just saying we don't have as much corruption within our system and our law enforcement and any cops. Because as a security guard, I deal with a lot of police and they've always been kind, curious, and they've always done their job to the book. You know, Matt's sparking one up right now. Um, And... They're all, and I always make sure I show them that respect when I get pulled over for a ride program. And at the end of it, I always say, thank you. Be safe. Because I care. I don't want anybody to get hurt. We Griffin. Just, Griffin. Oh, my Griffin. gosh. So we have a beautiful horse. Actually, beautiful is the wrong word. Handsome. Huge ass stallion. Is he a stallion? He's something. Uh, no. He's partially bred with a Clydesdale or something because he's a monster. He's fucking huge. He's he's one of the Hamilton's um, police uh, horses, which are bred with military horses. They're Clydesdales. There's all types in there to make them really robust, strong, huge. and they are giant because they are meant to be powerful beasts. Yeah. And they yeah. are they are absolutely amazing creatures that we have here in Hamilton for these. Yeah. Um, and I mean. I have never had any incident with the police that was bad. It was Neither. always really good. But I think the the other thing... I've probably saying, had more than you guys, yeah. have, I'm saying, because of my job. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying, like, 
that the Americans that that we're better. The other thing is our police don't have to deal with the same types of things on the That's same true. levels. If you, like I said, that is the last a huge one, right? deal. Yeah, our serial killers are so much few and less far between yeah. than what the states ever had or yeah. has. And the stuff that we deal with is on a scale of one to ten. Ten being the worst. 10 is at the states right now and probably pushing 11 or 12 where we're still maybe at a five at the and top you know the other thing is you our, know our police don't have to worry that when they arrest somebody they're going to pull a pistol mm-hmm. out that's a very rare worry the police have to because have. we have gun laws and anybody yeah. who poo-poos on gun laws don't poo-poo on gun laws yeah because like, things could be a lot worse here and they're yeah. not and they're not because we don't have we're we don't, so off topic yeah <laughs> but um but yeah so that's so, the big difference so let's reel this back to the case on hand shall we all right, let's get on to it. All right. Oh, that- I'm leaving that in. Fuck it. Yeah, leave it in. That's the whole point of the conversation. So conversations anyways, are good. Opinions are welcome. Yeah, that's why I like this. You're doing good. <coughs> anyways, both are of you are bringing winning? a lot. No, yeah, you guys are winning. Yeah, you guys are winning. both bringing a lot to the table during this podcast. Even Matt, because Matt usually is relatively silent during true crime podcast. I don't like people dying. No, neither does anybody. <laughs> you women Natural. have a morbid fascination with true crime and all this kind of stuff. I don't get it. I know it's out there. I know it exists. In- I don't like to follow along with it because I feel it brings my soul down. Okay, Colleen, you can In have the microphone. In my defense, I'm fascinated because I want to know why people do these things. I think for the big reason, the thing about why are women more fascinated about this, we're we know that we are at a higher risk. We are high risk. We are, we are to men. high risk for these. So we find out about what happened to other people as how do we protect ourselves? Exactly. What can we do? Exactly. Yeah. Boom. Mic drop by yeah. Colleen. Fair point. Fair point. Actually, that was a damn fucking good way. Yeah. I don't take our daughter to a mall because I'm afraid of a mall shooter. And I live in Canada. I don't have to really fear that. I'm sorry to all the victims and, of the recent see, mall shooting, by the way. This is why we get different perspectives going on this show. You know, you need the perspectives. You need the opinions. There's a certain former podcaster who would have a different opinion about the gun control. But I, I guess. <laughs> see, I remember this was a conversation my parents had all the time. My mom loves true crime. My dad, no, he didn't want to watch those shows. Yeah. And I remember mom saying to him once, she said, I want to know what I'm doing wrong. I want to know what I'm at risk for so I can protect myself. So that's why I remember When it. you go to your parking garage, and granted, I've been in your parking garage. It's and beautiful. It's relatively safe, and it's, it's clean, and it's not creepy, and it's not yeah. a public garage. Yeah. It's very and secure. I park in a private garage at work. I'm a security guard. I carry my keys a oh. certain way, even in the safety of my own private garage. I carry my keys, and as soon as I get out that door, I'm looking around to see what is exactly. around me. When I get to my car, because we I learned. look in the back. We I'm learned. Always, yeah, I'm. I look in my back seat. I look. At, I look. I spot the whole car before I even go into it. I have to admit. So last Sunday, I took River shopping. I didn't take her to a mall. Took her over here to the GT boutique. Um. I, the reason I don't take her shopping very often is because I'm fearful of what happens in public because I've watched so much. And yes, maybe that's a hindrance on my life and maybe even her life. But I don't tell her why I don't take her places. Yeah. It's because I don't. She's all we have. Yeah. And it's my job as a mom to protect her and not put her in these kind of types of situ- or potential situations. And I'm not saying any parent out there who takes their kid to a mall is doing that or to Disney World or SeaWorld. Or, well, don't go to SeaWorld. But you know what I mean? Like amusement parks. Don't. I'm not saying don't do that. Just make sure when you do, you're aware of your surroundings at all times. And you know where the exits are. And you know how where you can hide if necessary. Know your surroundings. Be familiar with your f- surroundings. Because 
That's what's going to save you in the end. And I'm not saying that any victims of mall shootings or movie theater shootings are at fault because they are not. Absolutely fucking not. It's the assholes who go in there with these guns and shit that are. But it shit happens. Shit happens. Well, you can't bring it. Well, I, I want to reel things back in here. Yeah. So you can't bring it. Uh, you can't just say shit happens because a lot of the times it's the fucked up few that we forgot yeah. too. you know what yeah. I mean? And they might not have been fucked up five years ago, but something fucked up happened to them. And, you know, or they hadn't been diagnosed, haven't gotten proper medical treatment. There's so many factors that can play into that. But I want to get back on to yeah. the point of the case. School shootings and public shootings is a completely yeah. different podcast, in yeah, my completely. opinion. Completely. Yeah, we, we're running out of time. So yeah, let's and I have a, I'm only on page four. That was a, like a good, good segue into like Ramirez's background. Right, exactly. And I'm not quite there yet. And we got to get to his capture first. Anyways, on August 30th, Detective Salerno and Carrillo are informed of the break in the case by san francisco's police department and ran the name finding eight richard ramirez ramirez's in their system they pulled the fingerprint cards belonging to all eight and compared the print from the rearview mirror to the 76 stolen on of the 76 stolen toyota station wagon and got a match their suspect was richard ramirez and he had been arrested for petty thefts in grand theft auto Using his booking photo, we're able to get an informant to positively ID him. As soon as the San Francisco Police Department heard about the positive identification and the print match, they wanted to publicly release his name and photo to the media. However, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department felt differently. They wanted to wait 24 hours to easily get him into custody and felt by releasing the name and photo would force Ramirez to run. The San Francisco Police Department disagreed and told the Sheriff's Office they had no choice. They were taking it to the media. In my personal opinion, I don't necessarily agree with the San Francisco Police Department. It wasn't their case. They had one victim dead because of Ramirez, whereas L.A. had multiple victims. It was originally their case as well. They should have had the say, not given an order. Both were instrumental in breaking the case, yes, but San Francisco's ego seemed to outweigh the um, heart and hard work of the L.A. County Sheriff's Office. So given very little choice in the matter, both jurisdictions held a press conference. Anybody have anything on that? Well, on that one, you know, I think their big fear was that what if we don't release it? And during the next 24 hours, what if he kills somebody? How do we explain that to our people? I get that. but That was where their fear was. But I do agree. Down, I do agree they should not have released it. Thankfully, this actually worked in their favor. So no harm done. But I do think that it was inappropriate for San Francisco to demand like, if they could prove that they could pick him up within 24 hours, I would give them 24 hours before. Exactly. You know, right? but like, if it's going to be like, oh, yeah, we'll get him on Thursday and it's like a Monday, it's like, no, we're going to release this so that everybody sees this guy. We don't have that time. Right. Right. Yeah. It's all right. So the next day on August 31st, the sheriff's office began staking out the Greyhound bus depot for a fleeing Ramirez with help from the LAPD. Um, we're able to, with the help from the LAPD, they were able to cover the entire place. At 8.15 a.m., Richard Ramirez stepped off of a bus coming in from Arizona. Who knows what he did there, right? Um, right away, he spotted the police and leaves the depot in a different way. Ramirez is completely unaware the police have identified him as the Night Stalker. That is until he goes inside a liquor store and sees his picture plastered all over different newspapers. Yep. Right? So it kind of it works and it doesn't at the same time. Right? <coughs> so he runs and hops on a city bus, but a passenger spots him and gets off the bus at the next stop and Ramirez sees this passenger go straight to a payphone. 
Ramirez gets off the bus and tries to steal a car, but is fought off. This draws even more unwanted attention, and he is chased through the neighborhood. Manuel de la Torres grabs a metal grabs grabs a metal pole, chases Ramirez, and manages to hit him a few times. The entire street had Ramirez cornered. It's then when Deputy Los Angeles County Sheriff's Officer Andy Ramirez, no religion, <coughs> arrived on the scene. It and he sees this large crowd surrounding Richard Ramirez, who was now tired of running and injured. The deputy takes Ramirez into um, custody. Um, this is where I asked the question: it Was the media here good, or could it have gone the other way? I, I see it as, in this case, somehow the media broke even. Mm-hmm. I have to agree with that. On this one, I I think see. If the if the police deputy had not arrived when he did, Ramirez would have been beaten, probably to death by by the crowd because the crowd was grab, gathering, getting bigger. <laughs> they knew who he was. They wanted him dead. Okay, but would that have been a bad thing? It would meant I, that's where the tr- thing is. It wouldn't have given the victims a chance for yeah um, to 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 get their justice. To get their justice, it also would have meant that they wouldn't have had a chance to talk to him to get details they might have wanted or needed. Exactly, and that's where the big issue on that one is. I think the media definitely should not have done it because they put him on the run. Mm-hmm. If they had not done it, the cops would have able been able to grab him pretty close to the bus station. He wouldn't have made it through the city, you know. And it caused such a huge uh, furor. Like they had the streets lining. The uh, the police station were just packed. They had people threatening to kill him. Yeah. They had to put him protect. Like, like it yeah. was it was unbelievable. The media created a situation that would not have been there otherwise. They created a panic situation. Absolutely, and they're known for doing that. Yeah. So who is this Richard Ramirez? Are we ready for this? Okay. Richard Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas, on February 29th, nineteen sixty. He was a leap year baby. Um, He was the youngest of three boys and two girls. His parents had immigrated from Mexico, and despite living in low-income housing, they kept their home nice and clean, which is, if you've ever seen low-income housing, which is kind of what we've not moved into, but which has now become, is usually pretty dirty and gross. And they've done that, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, his father was a strict, hardworking man who worked for the railroad. Richard grew up in a strict Roman Catholic home and had a relatively normal upbringing. He was described as being a nice, funny, and friendly child who, man- who had manners and was, a- and was very social with the other children from his neighborhood. One childhood friend said that Richard would often walk her to and from school as she lived in a not-so-safe area. At the age of 10, things changed. Richard began to have, to have seizures and was diagnosed with epilepsy. And that is where I believe the change in his personality has probably come, as well as a couple more things that I'm going to hit on. Anyways, he also grew distant from his father and began spending a lot of time with his older cousin, Mike. So Mike returned from Vietnam and talked about all the death and killing he had witnessed. And he would regale young Richard with stories of how he raped and murdered women and showed Richard pictures of these women in sexually compromising positions and even dead. Richard even watched his cousin shoot his own wife in the face. Through all of this, Richard found himself mesmerized, aroused, and fascinated by the violence. This is... Okay. That's a recipe for disaster right there. So, like, the first podcast of this was pretty freaking graphic. Like. That's the most graphic I get. Wow. In this one. And that's so, look at it. He, 10 years old, he had epilepsy. That was before he turned prepubescent. Well, he was prepubescent. He wasn't in puberty yet. Just getting into that. Then he's exposed to this violence in sexual He's got epilepsy and I made a freaking seizure joke. Thanks. I never even thought of it until just now. No, neither did I. 
Oops. He's, he's exposed to this at the prime period during early puberty. Right. When you're starting to realize what your sexual urges are and he's getting them confused. He's getting everything he, confused. He also, even before the epilepsy, he'd had, um, he'd gotten almost killed by a dresser falling on him and crushing his head. Um, and his, his father, from what I read, is his father could be abusive at times. He could be, but I... But not massively so. I don't... I think it was just like, okay, you're talking the 80s and, and the yeah. Catholic home. Every yeah. father was abusive in some way. Yeah. You got the strap, you got the hand, you got the spoon. Yeah. We've all been there. But what happened with Probably his not you, cousin... Probably not we've all... The branch or the fly swatter. <laughs> and my parents couldn't even ground me, okay? Yeah. Like, um... That's what I said, except for you. Yeah. The... Um, what happened with his cousin, that absolutely... Completely. That would actually f- a fuck oh. up your brain in the middle of all that yep. mix-up. Yeah. Epilepsy mixes your brain up, and yep. now you have to try to figure out what's right from wrong. And I'm not saying that he can't figure out from right from wrong, because he clearly can. It's just it confuses the brain. So now your version of right and wrong might be a little bit different than your Colleen's right and wrong. Co- Colleen never got grounded because they knew that she could never run away from home. <laughs> Back to the cripple jokes. He had to redeem himself for the epileptic That's joke. A good one. That's a good one. All right. On All right. Let's keep going. So he also found himself hanging out with boys in high school who did drugs. Ramirez would start doing drugs with them and found a liking of rock and roll music and discovered Satanism. Sorry, people. Rock and roll does not make you a Satanist. No. Okay. Anyways. <clears throat> Although some of them have sold their soul to the devil. Just saying. Allegedly. Allegedly. Okay, and this is where things get a little bit conflicting in terms of all the documentaries and um, books and shit I've read. This is where we try and fix stuff? No, it just gets a little mixed up. So I'm not sure which account is actually accurate here. So some. So all all this to follow is to be taken with a grain of salt. Absolutely. Pick your poison. So anyways, some say his father would force him into sleeping in cemeteries if he misbehaved as a child. But I've also found that others have said he chose one. He chose to do so once he discovered Satanism and that he also began stealing. So, like, he sometimes would sleep in cemeteries, whether it was by choice or if it was a punishment as a child. I don't know. I cannot confirm either one. So I put both out there. But he also began stealing. Okay. So allegedly, Ramirez was a suspect in an attempted rape of a minor while employed at a hotel. In 1978, he relocated to California and survived mostly on junk food, which rotted his teeth. There you go, Colleen. Ah. Yeah. He smoked a lot of weed, and he also possibly dabbled in heroin. He began robbing people while he lived on Skid Row or in flop houses. Retired FBI profiler Robert Ressler stated that fantasies and thoughts become very sexualized, and that's when these individuals become dangerous. The fantasies cannot suffice their urges for too long, and so they act out. Most burglaries are facilitate are to facilitate drug habits through material gain, but are rarely done solo. That rush of looking through other people's belongings and doing something forbidden creates a rush which can often develop into arousal. Eventually, voyeurism, sexual burglary, isn't enough and it escalates to sexual assault and murder, which is clearly what we're seeing here. So, Robert Ressler, you just kind of pinpointed Ramirez right on the button. Yeah, yeah done fucked up. Yeah. So, Rich Ramirez was died was a disorganized offender targeting low-risk victims. It didn't matter if his victims were 6 or 60, white or Hispanic, or male or female. The act of murder and seeing their fear is what got him off. His sexual gratification came from degrading and humiliating his victims as well as asserting power and control over them. 
He was also smarter than most people believe. Ramirez was articulate and well-read, despite dropping out of high school in grade nine. Really? Yes. After his capture, Richard Ramirez told Detective Frank Salerno that he knew who he was and was aware that Salerno caught the Hillside Strangler, Kenneth Bianchi, in case you missed that part in the first one. Ramirez would invoke his right to counsel, so all questioning had to stop. As a power play, Salerno would place Ramirez into a holding cell that was once occupied by Kenneth Bianchi, the Strangler. This was a way to see if Ramirez (laughs) would suddenly become chatty while they arranged a police lineup. Multiple survivors of Ramirez's, including six-year-old rape victim Anastasia, were present at the lineup, and Anastasia identified Ramirez as her abductor and assaulter. Heading the process, he never wore a mask, right? No, no. Yeah, so he that part would, that part would have been easy enough if you're a survivor. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, it was very. He had a very distinguishing feature: his very. teeth, his teeth, his teeth. That was something that all said. And I would also said. imagine his breath was quite shitty as well. Yeah, and, and, you know, the other thing everyone talked about was his eyes. His eyes were so dark, and everyone said soulless. And I see that when you I, look into his pictures. You, when you yeah. see the pictures, you can it, yeah. you see it. It hits Absolutely. you right off, even if you don't know who he is. Uh, I put all the mugshots up on our Facebook page. So remember we mentioned how mugshots or the police composite sketches never look like the actual um, person. Um, I actually posted that a bunch of mugshots of random serial killers and murderers on our um, Mystery Matt Fan Club Facebook page. And you can go check that out. Um, That's Ted Bundy. Yeah, He doesn't look anything like his fucking mugshot. Um, Ramirez had like. Yep. Yeah. Like he's got no soul. The eyes are just he's got no soul. Nothing. Fucking. Yeah, there's nothing yeah. there. They're they're just so dark and empty. Yeah. All right. That's the classic. So heading the prosecution team was District Attorney Phil Halpin and Deputy DA Alan Yochelin. 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 <laughs> Anyways, for the defense, Sorry, Ram- Ramirez hired newcomers Daniel and Arturo Hernandez. They weren't related, and they only had two years under their belts of practicing law and had zero experience in a capital case. Ramirez was charged with 14 counts of murder and 31 other felonies. At his arraignment on October 24th, 1985, Ramirez flashed a pentagram, which he drew on his hand and shouted, Hail Satan! His defense team first moved to, first move was to petition for a change of venue. <coughs> Sorry, Matt's coughing and I hate it when he does that. Anyways, because they were worried that the high publicity of the case garnered, that the high publicity of the case garnered could affect jury selection. They even interviewed 300 people, and this is in Los Angeles, so 300 people is not that much, um, and said that 93% knew of the case and believed Ramirez was guilty. The judge, Judge Dion Morrow, denied their request, basically saying that that's only 300 people of Los Angeles that's got, like, almost a million people living in it. Yeah. Right? So that's not even a high enough to make an argument. Ramirez testified in his own defense, saying that he never told his arresting officers that he did it. Um, his attorneys argued since the officer did not record the spontaneous confession and wanted these statements stricken, the judge, Superior Court Judge Michael Tyran denied the request. During the trial, Sergeant George Thomas testified that he wrote it down. The trial itself would repeatedly get postponed due to Ramirez's defense team constantly trying new excuses and tactics like asking for six separate trials to stop multiple linkages and lessen the evidence. Also, in March 1988, the San Francisco Police Department were able to link Ramirez to four homicides and rape and ten burglaries, but lack of evidence, uh, physical evidence to to support these um, cases prevented them from charging him. 
all but one, the murder of Mr. Pan, the attempted murder of his wife, and the burglary. So jury selection officially began on July 21st, 1998. 24 jurors were selected. 1989. 88. Okay, you said 98. So it was- I thought I said 88. <clears throat> okay. Um, as Judge Tyran felt that 12 alternate jur- alternate jurors were necessary. So de- 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 <laughs> Detectives Carrillo, Salerno, and District Attorney Phil Halpin met with Anastasia. She told the three men that she wanted to tell the court what happened to her so that the men who hurt her, or the man who hurt her, couldn't hurt anybody else. This became too much for Carrillo and politely excused himself as he became too emotional. Soon after, Salerno and Halpin joined him. It was Halpin who decided not to charge Ramirez with the crimes involving children because he couldn't subject those children to reliving what happened to them on the stand in so public of a venue. He was positive that he had more than enough to secure conviction on the murders and the other felonies. On January 31st, 1989, uh, his trial would finally begin. There were about 140 witnesses, including very powerful testimonies by the survivors. The trial went on for nearly nine whole months. On September 20th, the jury reached their verdict, guilty on all accounts. On November 7th, 1989, the families of the victims addressed the court about what Ramirez took from them. It was very powerful. It was also time for Ramirez to address the court. Okay. From Ramirez, I quote, I don't need to hear all of society's rationalizations. I've heard them all before, and the fact remains that what is is is. You don't understand me. You are not expected to. You are not capable of it. I am beyond your experience. I am beyond good and evil, unquote. Ramirez was sentenced to death by gas chamber and carted off to San Quentin. All right. So now we get into a little area. It's hard for me to comment on this shit because I don't really understand it. But he has adoring fans. Lots of them. Yep. So believe it or not, it's not uncommon for serial killers or cult leaders to have a fan base. Charles Manson likely never actually killed anybody, in my opinion. And he had a shit ton of groupies before and after. His followers actually got larger after he was incarcerated and found guilty. Ted Bundy was considered handsome by many women who felt he couldn't be guilty. It's completely bananas. Yeah. Richard Ramirez was no different. He had both female and male fans. He had almost a rock star type following. And during his transfer to jail, women would line the streets and flashing their breasts at him. And he loved every minute of it. While in prison, <coughs> women would send nude and sexualized photos of themselves to him. Maybe these women had a thing for bad guys or had major daddy issues, or maybe they were dropped on their fucking damn heads when they were kids. Um, some said, some women said that Ramirez had a strange sex appeal about him. I personally think he's vile and creepy and disgusting excuse for a human being. And I'm not going to say what I think of his admirers. I'm not. I, I will, I will admit if I were to see, there were a few pictures taken of him, and I've always liked the bad boy villains in, in movies. That doesn't mean I like the real ones. I'm sorry. I like my guy to be nice. Um, but a few of his pictures, if I were just to see them and not know who he is. Oh, it's going to go longer. There is. Not much longer. There is something about him, Like, he's got that dark bad boy look. So I could see that if you saw the picture and knew none of the context, you might be, oh, he's not bad. And there were some pictures of him that looked like, they looked like the dark, evil villain and some girls like that. To me, I looked at them. I'm like, I could understand why somebody might find that look might be attractive. But once you know anything about him, why? Why would you do that? I have an easier time understanding why women found Bundy attractive over Ramirez. Yeah. Same same here. I do you know? I do that. Bundy at least had the charm. Ramirez was like the absolute bad boy anti-culture. That is true. He very much yeah. was. All right. So, 
excuse me, I burped. His male fans were interested in him for his satanic and rock star representation. They saw the attention he was getting, and I guess they wanted that too. But who knows? It could have been sexual. You never really know, especially nowadays. Um, while incarcerated, Ramir- Ramirez com- corresponded with many people. However, in 1985, Doreen Leo- Leoy began writing letters, and Ramirez would propose to her three years later. On October 3rd, 1996, they were married with Ramirez's sister Ruth, his brother Joseph, and a teenage niece present. 96. 96. In prison. In prison. So. He was on death row. <laughs> and since he was on death row, conjugal visits were prohibited. Doreen stated that she didn't believe the evidence was real and believed in her husband's innocence. Until. <laughs> in 2009, newly tested DNA evidence proved that Richard Ramirez, Ramirez raped and murdered a nine-year-old girl, May Leung, on April of 1984. In April of 1984. So, Doreen divorced Ramirez. But then he would get engaged again. Um, he was never waiting for... He was, ne- he was never short of fans. No, he was uh, definitely It was just crazy. Not, no. So, to the survivors, the victims, loved ones, and law enforcement, they wouldn't get the ending they were promised. Richard Ramirez would not see inside the gas chamber despite sitting on death row for 24 years. In a hospital in Greenbrae, California, on June 7th, 2020, 2013... Ramirez died of complications secondary to B-cell lymphoma. Gas chamber or not, all who suffered at the hands of Richard Ramirez, including law enforcement, had to have a, had to have let a breath of sigh of relief out. Their boogeyman was finally dead. Ah, shit. Um, was finally gone. Maybe he suffered or maybe not. He didn't. Or maybe he didn't. With any luck, he fucking suffered. Yeah. So, there are always a possibility that there could be many unknown victims... That could be linked to Ramirez. Truth is, there probably is. Well, likely we'll never know. He's not talking, and even if he wasn't dead, he probably wouldn't have talked anyways. He's gone, and if you believe in heaven or hell, then it's probably safe to say he's where he should be. On a cloud above us, miserable, because he couldn't meet his savior, Satan. Bye-bye, bitch. You know what got me? It was one comment on the documentary by his attorney. And his attorney said this wasn't his first rodeo. No, it couldn't have. And, and the, attorney, the attorney said, I can't expand, expand any on that, but it was not his first rodeo. Basically, it, this guy. Valid, had, like, consult, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, verifying that yeah. he had other victims. Yeah. And I, he could have been referring to the nine year old in 1984. He could have. Or there was or more. This guy traveled around enough. He, like, he'd gone to, to Texas, all over. You know, and. He just returned from Arizona when he got caught. I, so, how what did many, he do in Arizona? How many burglaries turn into a murder and it's like you get one here you get one there they don't get linked maybe his first burglary he got caught killed them out of self-defense or self-preservation and went oh and loved it and yeah felt aroused by it you know because that's what these types of guys do they they might kill somebody by accident and go oh my god i fucking hard as a rock and i gotta jerk yeah. off it's a sick mentality but i think of it's not uncommon of all of the serial killers, Ramirez is one that I think probably scares me the most because he was so brutal and he did it just on a whim, out of nowhere. It wasn't planned. It wasn't like targeted. And it was quick. It was so quick. Like, and it was here. Boom. It was two boom. in one night. Yeah. Next day, two in one night. Like yeah. it was constant and, escalation. And there was no profile of a victim that you could match. It was everybody was at risk everybody and 
I even, I was only like seven years old, like six, seven years old. But I do remember the fear that came in those newscasts that, and it was like, well, thank God this guy isn't here. Can I be honest? The first time I watched the documentary, it was during the day. Yeah. I, I don't blame you. I watched I it. knew a little bit about him going into the documentary, but I didn't know the full scope of things. And when I watched the documentary on Netflix, I watched it during the day. Uh, and I'm glad I did. But then yeah. the second time I watched it to do this case, I watched it at night while I'm at work at my desk alone in a lobby surrounded by windows. Um, thank God those doors lock. Um, and I kept them locked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it does freak you out because there is no designated victim. He's not just going after Hispanic people. Yeah. Like he would normally no would. If you were to profile reason. him, that's where he would go. He's hitting white people, Asian people, Hispanic people, um, kids, boys and girls, men and women. Every, elderly. Elderly. Yep. It, it was like the victim pool was literally a pool. It was everybody. Yeah. There was, and that was what the people of Los Angeles felt. It was like, no one is safe. So there is no one safe. So a friend of mine on Facebook shout out to you you know who you are commented i believe on the mystery map fam club page so it's probably not a secret that his mother lived in la during that time Wow. Oh, that really? they lived in la during that time one of our fans yeah. commented that yeah really on oh. the, the first podcast link or was it the uh sketch might have been the composites well i usually check it after the recording so we'll, we'll, yeah. I'll, I'll go look yeah but i was like wow like i can't even imagine the fear that they had as a family living in that area during that time. Um, Cause even now to think of a monster like that running around is scary. And even when we were living through the whole Bernardo shit without even knowing who it was, we were scared. Yeah. That changed our shit. view of yes. our life. We couldn't do the same things we did yeah. a year before that happened. Yeah. So it really crime in itself in a community makes pretty much that community a victim. And Los Angeles is a huge community with, well, a huge city with multiple little communities in it. And he was hitting everything from Sierra Madre to, uh, um, San, San like the, to bar, whatever. Oh, I can't even remember half the names now. Right. But he was hitting everywhere. And then he even hit San Francisco. Yeah. So he was mobile. Yeah. Well, good spot to end it, ladies. Uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us on this uh, part two of the Night Stalker series. It's it's only a two-parter. We're done now. We're done. We're done. We promise. We promise. Next week, we're back with another surprise bag type podcast. So uh, stick around for that. You guys take her easy and uh, sleep tight.